I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, and get you through this period. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All I can say is, whew, thank God it's Friday. In a week where the Dow plummeted 5.7%, notching its worst five days since January 2016. We're thankful for this. The closing bell. You know what? It looks like we're back in several sessions in one day mode, as we were in early February. Average swinging wildly throughout the day. First, there was a bull with plenty of green at the opening, then a bear late morning swoon back to a presidential inspired bull. Finally, a hideous going to the weekend bear romp. Dow ultimately plunging 425 points. S&P plummeting 2.1%. NASDAQ nosediving 2.4% with some big names in there falling far more. You know what we had? We had four sessions between 940 and 4, and it's given me a big case of whiplash. I don't know about you. Now, initially, things did look really strong this morning. We got a terrific bounce off after yesterday's hideous 700 Dow point decline. Then we just gave up the ghost. At one point, the Nasdaq was in free fall, and it was led again by social media, but then joined headlong by the semiconductors, which had been a sign of strength recently. Then the president held a press conference, and on the way out, He said to the press that we had a good stock market, and he noted that when I came into office, the stock market was from a different planet, end quote. Hmm. All right. Okay. Well, those odd words did trigger a rally. In fact, we zoomed well into the black with with this same exact laggards turning into leaders. Unfortunately, it didn't stop the averages from getting poleaxed again near the close in a tortured and hideous final hour. You know what? By the end, we were almost totally bereft of any leadership aside from the defense stocks, as defense fared well in the big omnibus spending bill that the president just signed into law. Look, I hate to say it, but I honestly think the president's become pretty frightening to investors in the stock market. And I think they're fleeing. At times, I do wish we were back on that old planet he referenced where there was still plenty of money to be made. More on that later. But first, let's remember that until very recently, earnings still mattered. Okay, back when the market was soaring, it it, it was great. Now, we have to hope that maybe things will calm down. The White House starts trying to make deals instead of making enemies. And then the earnings will matter again. They sure didn't matter to the market's trajectory this week because we had some very good ones. But I live in hope. So with that in mind, what are we looking at next week? Okay, on Monday, we hear from Paychex. That's an old Kramer favorite. The market seemed pleased with the company's last quarter, but then as things got gloomy around the country, the stock started getting hit. Now, it's down substantially from where it traded after the last quarter, yet we've had a rate hike since it reported, which is bullish for Paychex because their clients give them money and they collect interest on it until they deposit your wages in your account. Plus, we've had very robust employment. 
You know what? I think these guys could have a very good story to tell. After the close, Red Hat reports. And I am concerned here. No, I'm not worried about Red Hat, the company. I expect the quarter will be fine. I'm worried about Red Hat, the stock, because it's been it's gained a 23 percent for the year, practically in a straight line. It's almost impossible for any stock to live up to that. And Red Hat has, has enough key reporting variables, you know, a lot of different numbers they report that I think someone will find fault with one of them. I wish I didn't have to say this because it's one of my favorite companies with one of my favorite CEOs. But I'd be tempted to recommend ringing the register on some of your position going into the quarter, just in case we get a confusing report card or someone decides, you know what? It's had a big run. Let's take it off the table. Now, we also hear from William Dudley, Bill Dudley, when I was at Goldman, the New York Fed chief, who's due to retire this summer. Hey, you know what? That could mean he's able to be a little more freewheeling, a little less buttoned up when he speaks, which could mean some candid discussion about presidential tariffs, tax cuts, inflation. Or maybe Dudley will be positive and say that he, too, regards this as being on another planet, although he may not say it's a better one. On Tuesday, we get results from McCormick. Okay, where's my McCormick stuff? I used to have some... Oh, someone took away my spice. I have McCormick spice somewhere. And you know what? Uh, There's been a disparity in performance from the food companies this year, and it's been nothing short of staggering. Earlier this week, General Mills reported a horrendous quarter. Then ConAgra came along and gave us a number that was downright impressive. Which will McCormick give us, especially now that it has Frank's hot sauce under its wing? This spice company is not prone to misses, and yet its stock is down 10% already. It's tough to bet against these guys at these levels. But by the way, I understand you can put that Frank's on anything, and Kareem just came up with my old bay. I always look at this and think, how could this, the Ravens, been champion when the Eagles are the champion? After the close, after the close, Lulu Emin reports. Hey, look, Apparel's doing very well here, including Lulu. The only issue is that it doesn't have a CEO. But then again, it may not even need one at the moment, given how much momentum the company has. We also hear from Restoration Hardware, RH. This upscale furniture chain has been putting up some very strong numbers of late, but the market hasn't been kind to its stock after a miraculous run from the mid-20s, where, by the way, the CEO, Gary Friedman, bought stock, to the hundreds. Restoration has now come down to 77 which feels very much like no man's land. I think the company is brilliantly run. I don't understand why it's only valued at $1.65 billion. But when you consider it was worth a little less than half that at this time last year, maybe it's not a totally outrageous valuation. Now, if you want to get a feel for the cutting edge of technology, do you know there's really only one person to ask? And by the way, when we were out in San Francisco, I got this from many different people. You know who that one person is? His name is, his name is Jensen Wong. You know who Jensen Wong is? He's the co-founder and CEO of NVIDIA, who's known in Silicon Valley as the greatest visionary in tech today. Jensen is the go-to CEO when it comes to semiconductors. Forget this. The data center for gaming and for autonomous vehicles, among many areas. Can you imagine? He's been known to move whole markets when he speaks, so he'll be paying close attention We're going to pay close attention to the company's investor day on Tuesday. Hey, maybe you can get us back to that planet. You know, the one that president referenced. I'm kind of hung up on that. Wednesday is going to bring healthy returns. 
How can I be sure? Because I'll be hosting some panels for CNBC's first Healthy Returns Conference. And it's about all aspects of our seemingly broken healthcare system. If you miss it, don't worry. I'll be reporting on what I learned during the day, and I am on some dynamite panels myself with some really great people. Speaking of healthcare, Walgreens reports Wednesday morning, and the drugstore's chain has been struggling to become more relevant. Part of the problem is that the so-called front of the store has been hurting because of competition from Amazon. Here's a former market darling that's fallen from the 80s to the 60s over the last year, a year that until recently was pretty darn good for most stocks. Walgreens has been in its own personal bear market or its own planet, the one near Pluto, to belabor the metaphor, and even a good quarter may not be enough to save it. After the close, we hear from PVH. More on this later. For now, let me just say that I bet this apparel company will put up some good numbers, just like every other apparel play. We know PVH chiefly as Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger, but it's also a company with a lot of business in China. And anything with Chinese exposure these days is suspect because the Chinese government is actively hunting for iconic American brands that they can hit with retaliatory tariffs. Do you think that Apple was down big this week for, just, for any other reason? No. Hey, listen, maybe Calvin's are on the forbidden list. Still, a good quarter does seem in the cards. On Thursday, Constellation Brands reports. We own this stock for my Chapel Trust, which you can follow along if you belong to the ActionAlertsPlus.com club, where I've got an important speech on Monday. Constellation missed the last time it reported. The culprit was the wine business, and CEO Rob Sands explained to us that the issue was a short-term phenomenon. Either way, I think the beer business is on fire. Hey, let me give you an oddity. You really like this. Do you know that Sanco de Mayo falls on a Saturday this year? Don't laugh. We know at Bar San Miguel that a Saturday Sanko could be the biggest day we've ever had. Maybe it's the biggest day ever for Constellation's Corona and Modelo brands, too. Do you know what? It is enough to move the company's quarter. All right, the market's closed for Good Friday. And, and if next week's anything like this week, the Bulls will be glad for the day off. The bottom line, hopefully the White House will get a grip, allowing the market to calm down so we can get back to a placid planet where we focus on earnings again, not government policy or whatever is being formed down there right now. But be prepared for more chaos just in case nothing changes. Let's take some questions. Let's go to John in New York, please. John. Kramer, first-time caller, love your show. Thank you, I John. You I need to hear uh, that. It's been a long day. What's up? It's, it sure has. Hey, listen, man, I know you love the 3M story, um, but it's been painful. Stock down 45 bucks from its high, and half of that loss has come this week. I'd like to know if you still like Oh, boy, i got to tell you, I was talking to Jeff and Zev all day today. They're my teammates for Action Learners Plus for the club, and I'll be candid. The company had a conference yesterday, and in it, they guided down. They, sh- they uh, shaded the first quarter. It was a shock to me. Pure shock. And they've got China exposure. So, yes, I've been bullish in this company for a long time, but this week was horrendous. And you know what? I don't think the stock's done going down. We're going to hold off buying for a while. All right, boy, what a week it's been. There's multiple sessions in one, and they ended up with the worst one. Earnings don't matter right now. The president is bringing some fright to the market. I just want to go back to the old planet that he referenced, that really good one. Okay, on Mad Money tonight, after a brutal week, I've spotted a company that's actually worth taking off the sales rack. 
I'll reveal the name just ahead. Then the CEO of newly minted Dropbox turned down a takeover offer from Steve Jobs to keep control over the cloud storage store. How's it going on the first day of trading? I'm eyeing the company. And ADT and Burlington, two private equity-backed IPOs with very different outcomes. Coming up, I'll explain how to tell the difference between a raising success and a total flop when it comes to these kinds of deals. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. It has been a very rough week for the stock market. But when people panic and the averages sell off dramatically, we often forget that this fear can create some fabulous buying opportunities. Buy, buy, buy! Think of it as like a sale at the mall. Some of the markdown merchandise will be cheap because it stinks. But some of it will be cheap just because the stores in the mall, meaning the portfolio managers, are trying to unload excess inventory. Those are the real bargains, and when you spot them, you know what? You got to pounce. <laughs> Opportunities like PVH. The apparel company you know is Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. The stock of PVH got obliterated back in February based on nothing in particular aside from Wall Street cooling on retail. And it got slammed again this week along with the rest of the market. But this company reports next Wednesday night. And based on the publicly available clues, and that's what we have to work with, I bet it will deliver a very good quarter. In short, I think this is your chance to pick up a high-quality piece of merchandise that's now down almost 12% from its January highs. PVH is way too cheaper, and if the company really does give us some good numbers next week, you know what? I expect the stock to behave like a coiled spring. That was easy. So let's go over why I feel so confident about this one. Because nearly every piece of evidence we've gotten so far suggests that the quarter will be very, very robust. That's why. First of all, whenever you evaluate a company, you've got to look at how its performance is trending. In other words, what have they done for you lately? In the case of BVH, the trend, I'm calling it your friend. The companies beat Wall Street's earnings estimates eight times in the last eight quarters, and they beat the revenue estimates seven out of eight times. The only exception was a tiny $2 million miss a year and a half ago. Most of these numbers have come in well ahead of the company's own guidance. Speaking of guidance, PVH also tends to raise its forecast when it reports. That's cool. It's giving you the classic beat and raise formula that usually produces higher stock prices. We analyze this over and over again and get rich carefully. It is the single best predictor of where stock's going to go. Now, obviously, past performance is no guarantee of future results, but it helps to know that in recent years, PVH has become a well-oiled machine. Even better, the company's sales have been accelerating over the past few years, and accelerating revenue growth is something Wall Street loves so much that we normally just call it by its acronym in Kramerica, ARG. Second, just yesterday, Piper Jaffray's Erin Murphy, she's an excellent retail analyst, published a very bullish note talking about the strength of the company's Calvin Klein business in Asia. I'm going to read you a snippet. Quote, we continuously heard from our checks that PVH portfolio performed well. End quote. Now, this strength in Asia is 
It's a double-edged sword. Because with everyone worried about China retaliating against American exports, PVH's Chinese business could come under pressure. Okay, that's not good. But the company is far more exposed to the U.S. and Europe. And look, I'd rather have a booming Chinese business. Sorry. A booming Chinese business that might come under threat than a lousy Chinese business that isn't worth threatening. So maybe it's not so much of a double-edged sword after all. Third, the single best place to learn about any public, any publicly held company is from its quarterly earnings reports, right? The conference calls. On PBH's last call from November 30th, management told you a very compelling story. You might say, well, who cares? Come on, that was three months ago. Well, wait a second. You've got to remember, next week, PBH is going to report their fourth quarter results, the quarter that lasted from November through January. Meaning on that last conference call that we heard, they already had roughly a third of the latest quarter in the bag. And November's arguably the most important month. Let me see, you got that Cyber Monday thing, Black Friday, lots of holiday shopping. So what did PVH have to say about it? Here's a snippet from Manny Chirico, the CEO and longtime friend of the show. He told us, and I quote, in the fourth quarter, our early holiday sales and margin results are running well ahead of our financial plans. Emphasis by me on the word well, end quote. He, he said international continues to see quote, nice momentum, and the U.S. business was experiencing, quote, big improvement. In fact, given all of the strength, Chirico outright told you, and I quote, we can continue to over-deliver against our financial plans, end quote. Translation, well, that's as close as he can come to saying the estimates, even his own forecasts, are too low. When asked about the North American department store space where PVH makes a lot of its money, he was even more bullish. Chirico said, and I quote, it feels like we're going into December with a lot of momentum, tighter inventories. I think it'll be promotional, but probably not as promotional as last year. There'll be less goods to clear come January, end quote. Wow, that's a compelling story. The fourth clue, everything we've heard from other companies reinforces the idea that the fourth quarter was fabulous for PVH's apparel business, too. According to MasterCard, online and in-store spending for the holidays increased by 4.9% year-over-year. The department stores gave us surprisingly strong holiday numbers. Kohl's saw its same-store sales numbers grow at 6.9% clip. Um, I, you, Nordstrom had a great holiday season. Three year, it, for the, it was best in three years. Macy's finally got its act together. Just yesterday, Nike reported a great quarter. And I mentioned this Because on the conference call, CEO Mark Parker talked about how, I quote, there's a strong global appetite for athletic footwear and apparel, end quote. By the way, the Nike conference call was excellent. Now, if Nike's saying that apparel is strong, you better believe that it also applies to Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger. Clue number five. PVH is a huge beneficiary from the weakening dollar. The company gets roughly three-quarters of its operating income from overseas. So when the dollar declines versus other currencies, like it's been doing in recent months, PVH's products become cheaper in foreign countries, and its foreign earnings translate into more greenbacks. That's what a weak dollar means. This will be a major tailwind for the quarter the company reports next week. Six, because PVH is an apparel maker, 
It doesn't have the same woes as bricks and mortar retailers that need to compete with Amazon. Think of them as an arms dealer to everyone in retail, including Amazon. That's one of the company's longstanding partners. Together with Amazon, they created a bunch of Calvin Klein pop-up stores in New York and Los Angeles. This was a holiday exclusive, and I have a very good feeling about these numbers. Why? Because they had already been open for weeks at the time of the last conference call, and Chirico sounded very excited about how this Amazon collaboration thing was going. That's why I think the stock is a buy into recent weakness. I got I to gotta give you a caveat here. Even if the numbers are excellent, if Tirico says anything really worrisome about the escalating trade dispute with China, well, it could torpedo the whole story. Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger are iconic American brands with major China exposure. So they might be natural targets for retaliatory tariffs from the Chinese government. Then again, most of this stuff is actually manufactured in Southeast Asia, Latin America, uh, Africa. A tariff on Calvin Klein does more to punish Bangladesh than the U.S. Heck, a lot of the merchandise is even made in China. That makes it less, uh, less of a target for retaliation. But here's the bottom line. Even with the newfound war, uh, trade war worries, I think the stock of PVH has come down too far too fast. This company is set to report what I believe will be a terrific quarter next week. And given how well apparel's been selling, I think it's absolutely worth buying ahead of earnings. Much more mad money ahead. Dropbox just made its public debut and its share soared. I'll tell you if you've missed your chance to get into the largest tech IPO since Snap. Then after a tough week for the averages, oh yeah, I'm helping you determine how to spot a beaten down winner and a loser that deserves that beat down. You're not going to want to miss this case study. And Trump's big short What's our president thinking? And does he have a plan? I'm going to talk tariffs, trade, Trump. Stick with Kramer. At the end of a brutal week, man, do you know... The Nasdaq closed below 7,000. That's off more than 6%. It's nice to get a reminder that good things can still happen. I'm talking about the fabulous initial public offering for Dropbox, due to the largest tech IPO in more than a year, which only closed up over 35% today. If you were paying attention over the course of the session, you know that this was a white-hot deal. For the older generation who may not be familiar with this one, Dropbox is a cloud-based storage play. They let you uh, access your files over the web anywhere at any time. This is exactly the kind of stock that Wall Street wants right now. No wonder the deal ended up pricing substantially higher than the original range of 16 to 18. That eventually got raised to about 18 to 20, but Dropbox actually came public at 21, and then it opened at 29, which is where it stayed. At this point, though, none of that is really relevant, is it? What you need to know is whether Dropbox is worth buying at these levels. So let's try to figure this one out. First of all, Dropbox is a company that's changed a lot over the course of its short lifespan. Uh, It was founded in 2007 as an online storage play, an easier way to share your data across multiple devices. But since then, the company's become more of a digital collaboration platform. Their software helps you minimize the amount of time you spend performing tedious tasks, like searching for content or managing workflows or switching between applications. For example, a few years ago, Expedia bought 10,000 Dropbox business licenses when they realized that their employees were already using a free version to coordinate projects all over the world. While Dropbox may be new to the market, it is not new to Americans. 
That's right. Remember this from way back in November 2013 when we first heard about what an amazing growth story it is from an even younger Drew Halston. Take a look. Dropbox has to be the fastest growing, most in, for both individuals now, corporate love product. You're now 200 million users. How quick did that happen? Uh, it's been moving. Last year we were 100 million. This year we're 200 million. It's been like that since the beginning. I think I looked younger. Well, yeah, it was five years ago. Anyway, that's one of the most impressive things about the story. The product practically sells itself. Dropbox gives away free versions of their storage and collaboration software. But if you want more storage space or more functionality, you need to pay up for the professional version. No wonder the company's going from 200 million users when we saw that video. Okay, that's why I interviewed Drew at 2013 Salesforce Dreamforce to more than 500 million registered users today. That's very good growth. That's half a billion people out there using Dropbox and spreading it like a virus to their friends and family and coworkers. Of those 500 million free users, the company believes that 300 million have similar characteristics as their paid subscribers. In other words, the opportunity here is enormous, and Dropbox doesn't even need to spend that much money on advertising because 90% of their sales come from people upgrading on the web, website or the app. They get you using the free version. Then you upgrade to Dropbox Plus. Then you start using that at work and convince your boss to pay for the more expensive Dropbox professional. Ah, it's a great business model. So we like the story. But what about the actual numbers? I think they're pretty impressive. Last year, Dropbox generated 31% revenue growth. Now, that's down slightly from nearly 40% in 2016, but still pretty much in line with the other major plow, uh, players in the cloud. The company's gross margin, what they make after the cost of goods sold, it has been surging from 32.5% in 2015 to 66.7% last year as Dropbox gradually gets closer to turning a profit. In fact, management expects the earnings will go positive this year, and the cash flow is exploding. It's up 122% last year. These are great numbers. The balance sheet, clean as a whistle. The company's using the proceeds of the IPO to pay back its modest amount of debt, and it already has $430 million in cash on the balance sheet at the end of last year. Given that it just raised anywhere from $600 to $750 million, Dropbox is going to have a pretty deep pocket. Wow. For a newly public company, certainly more than most of the ones we've studied. Let's go deeper. Dropbox has more than 11 million paid users. Last year, the paid user count grew by 25%. And while that's down from more than 35% in 2016, it's still a strong figure. The company's average revenue per user has been rising, albeit fairly slowly. The crucial issue here is whether or not the company can keep turning its nearly endless supply of free users into paying customers. I think they can. Dropbox has gotten as large as it is mostly through word of mouth. Imagine what they can do with nearly a billion dollars in cash to invest in growing the business. If the company's going to maintain its growth rate, it only needs to convert two to four million free customers into paying ones each year. That may sound like a lot, but remember, they have 500 million free users, so we're talking about less than 1%. On top of that, they've made some smart moves lately. For example, earlier this month, Dropbox announced a strategic partnership with Salesforce.com. Remember that, uh, that video is from, from Dreamforce. Basically, this integrates Salesforce's incredibly popular enterprise software with Dropbox's storage and collaboration platform. That's going to bring a lot of customers. Put it all together, and I'm a big fan of Dropbox, the company, and its CEO, Drew Halston. But what about Dropbox, the stock? Isn't that what we really want to find out? One may have money. Can I really recommend something that ran up almost 40% in his first moments of trading? 
That's the question. What are we willing to pay for the stock of Dropbox? So let's do the numbers and what we call the comps. At these levels, the stock is trading at 8.5 times next year's sales estimate. Keep that in mind, not earnings, sales, and 124 times next year's earnings estimates. Now, that may sound super expensive, but it's actually pretty in line with the other kings of the cloud. And yes, I think Dropbox absolutely counts as cloud royalty. Adobe, Salesforce, ServiceNow, Red Hat, Splunk, VMware, and Workday all have roughly similar growth rates, and they sell for anywhere from five to ten times next year's sales estimates. If you try to value Dropbox earnings, it looks more expensive than the other kings. But then again, the company's right on the verge of turning a profit, which means it will take a few years before it makes sense to value the stock on an earnings basis. In short, Dropbox is trading like it's one of the kings of the cloud. So you have to ask yourself, does it deserve to trade like a cloud king? I think so. Dropbox is cheaper than Adobe, but it's going faster than Adobe. Ideally, I'd like to wait for a pullback before telling you to pull the trigger. But you know what? I'm not sure you're going to get one. The bottom line, look, you need to be careful with these red-hot IPOs. That said, I absolutely feel comfortable about giving you my blessing to speculate on Dropbox. Notice the verb there, speculate. There aren't that many first-class cloud plays out there, and the group will only become more attractive if people keep freaking out about a trade war with China like they did all this week. Because this is the kind of secular growth theme that keeps working even if the economy slows down. I say put on part of your position and then hope the stock of this incredibly well-run company gets slammed so you can buy more later and lower. John, in my old home state of Pennsylvania, John! Jimmy boy, how are you today? Man, I don't know. Guess getting the stuffings kicked out of me. How about you? Uh, it's a rough one. It's a rough one. It I, is I, rough. I was doing doing some work, uh, getting my car done, and I saw the the ending numbers. It was not pretty. But Jim, I'm calling about uh, Twilio. They just announced a collaboration with Singtel a couple days ago, an Asian tele company, uh, you know, telco company, and. Um, you know, to improve their cloud communications platform. I just want to know, what are your ideas on Twilio? Of, you know, going right, on Twilio? Okay, here's the problem with Twilio. It's had such a big run. I, you know, I like Jeff Lawson. I like George Yu. Number two used to be at Salesforce. But it's had such a big run and everything's coming down. you got to wait for this one to come down along with it because, holy cow, we're selling. Sellers were everywhere. All right, Dropbox. Congratulations to Drew House because this made a fabulous Wall Street debut. You have my blessing to actually speculate on this one and hope for a pullback to buy more. Okay, much more mad money ahead. Think security company ADT and retailer Burlington don't have much in common. Think again. Both are private equity-backed IPOs, and they can teach us an awful lot about how to spot a winner and a total loser. Then whatever happened to the President Trump, who loved being graded by the stock market, uh, after a tough week for the averages, I'll tell you if attitudes have changed, his or ours. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. And, of course, a look back at this amazing and terrible week that was. So stick with Kramer. On yet another ugly day for the averages, you know, we got to take a deep breath and think about the best way to pick stocks into weakness. How do you tell the difference between a beaten down winner and a loser that deserves to be knocked flat on the canvas? 
Tonight, I want to answer that question with a little case study of a certain type of company, and that's the private equity-backed IPO. A few years ago, it really seemed like the private equity guys were trying to take over the world, buying practically anything that wasn't nailed down. They borrow a bunch of money, acquire publicly traded companies, then cut expenses to the bone, and eventually sell them back to the public via an IPO. But as with anything else in the market, not all private equity-backed deals are created equal. Some are a heck of a lot more equal than others. If you want to know what a total dog looks like, check out ADT, and that's Andy, Dave, Tom, the maker of security systems that came public again two months ago. The stock's fallen from an already discounted IPO price of $14 to $8 and change in less than two months. No one wants to go near this thing. The reason? ADT was taken private by Apollo about two years ago, and it really doesn't seem to have benefited very much under uh, its time that it was private with Apollo's tutelage. It's not like this was a beloved company before it was taken private, but it has only gotten worse. Now, some people like to describe private equity firms as practicing vulture capitalism, like they're carrion eaters who feast on the flesh of dying businesses. I think that's very unfair. When these leveraged buyout artists do the job right, they can create tremendous amounts of value, including for the public shareholders they ultimately sell their merchandise to. So for that, I want you to look at Burlington Stores, the off-price chain that came public again less than five years ago. When Burlington Coat Factory, as it was known then, got taken private by Bain Capital, the company was a mess. But since coming public again, the stock has rallied more than 600%. Yeah, come on, that's an incredible win. Some companies do indeed come out of the process much stronger. Being private means they can make tough decisions outside the public glare in order to get the business back on track again. So how do you tell the difference between an ADT to Burlington stores. How do you know when a private equity-backed IPO will work out and then when it won't? Okay, let's look at ADT. The modern incarnation of this company was created when Tyco spun off its security division as a separate entity in 2012. The stock marked time for a few years, then ADT was taken private by Apollo Global Management back in 2016. Apollo brought, uh, brought ATT public again back in January, and that really should have been the first sign that something was wrong. This whole process seemed very rushed to me. The whole point of the process is that the leveraged buyout guys do what's necessary to make the business better. But turnarounds take time. As for the IPO itself, it was a total bust. And since then, the stocks just kept on falling. Why? ADT's first quarter right out of the gate reported a week ago was downright awful. The company's not even turning a profit. Honestly, though, if you stuck around until last week, you weren't paying attention because this thing was doomed from the start. First of all, like I mentioned before, the lack of time spent private was a real red flag. This is a sure sign that a private equity shop is looking to unload a dud investment because presumably they don't think it's worth the effort to spend more time turning things around. That's my opinion. Second, in the time since ADT went private, the security business has gotten a lot more competitive. And again, it's not like ADT was in great shape before the Apollo bid. While the company was private, new rivals figured out how to make home security systems. Now you got Apple and Alphabet making some smart home devices that are a lot more sophisticated than anything ADT can come up with. What else? Well, nearly every private equity firm uh, backed IPO tends to have a lot of debt. But ATT's balance sheet, it is particularly ugly. They had a $5.4 billion $500 billion in long-term debt before going private. 
That has now ballooned to $10.2 billion by the time of the IPO in January. The, this money was borrowed to finance the leverage buyout. ADT would have been better off if it had never gone private in the first place. Also, Apollo had ADT pay them a $750 million special dividend last year, so at least they got something out of it. If they didn't turn it around, what the heck did Apollo even do with ADT? Okay, what they did was they merged it with a couple of other security companies like Protection One and ASG and installed Protection One CEO as the head of the whole entity. This thing is a stitched together Frankenstein's monster of a business. And you can see that in the IPO prospectus, which was full of all kinds of adjustments. The idea that Apollo would take this thing public so soon after a major transformation merger, it almost defies belief, frankly. But the worst thing about this botched deal is that it didn't have to go this way. They can do a lot better. And for that, I want you to consider the old Burlington Coat Factory, an ailing retailer that was taken private by Bain Capital in 2006 for a little over $2 billion. Bain took its time turning the business around. And when they finally took it public again in 2013, wow, it was one of the hottest deals around. With the new Burlington store surging 47% on its first day of trading, the darn thing is now up 670% from its IPO price, up 425% from that first close, and that is a huge win for all involved. Let's compare them point by point. Unlike ADT, Burlington's private equity owners took their time, spent roughly seven years turning the business around, and turn it around they did. When Burlington went private in 2006, it had $2.4 billion in annual sales. When it came public again in 2013, $4 $4 billion in sales. Not only did they cut costs, they grew the business dramatically. Burlington's debt load when it came public again was manageable. It was $1.7 billion. It quickly cut down to $1.4 billion using the proceeds of the deal. Unlike ADT, Burlington kept things simple. No complex mergers, just healthy new store growth, giving investors a nice, clean story. Sure, Bain paid themselves $636 million in special dividends from Burlington. But you know what? They earned it. And I know the two businesses aren't comparable, but what happened when they were private, I think that's a good compare. The bottom line, the next time you see a private equity-backed IPO like ADT, I want you to run in the other direction. When these firms take a company public again in less than two years, it may be a sign that something is wrong. When they take their time, though, like Bain did with Burlington Stores, these so-called vultures can work miracles. These are the kinds of deals we're looking for. And when I spot one of them, I'm going to be the first to tell you about it. It is time. It's time for the Lightning Round. Pick up your round. Throw one. Somebody say about the myself. Don't be playing. Play this out. And then the Lightning Rounds are. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, time for the Lightning Round. I'm going to start with Melissa. Go with Melissa. That's the only distance. Hold down. What no, do I no, do? No, no, no. I'm holding it. Hold it, man. My travel trust sold it too soon. This company's doing much better than every other company in the, in the business. Stay long. Scott in Florida. Scott. Hey, Jim. How are you? Oh, rough this, day. How about you? Yeah, yeah. I feel you. But this is this is uh, Scott from West Palm, the famous winter White House. Yes. Um, Question for you is uh, PSEC, Prospect Capital Corporation. Your upside on that. No, I think it's I, that yield north of 10 tells me I think things should be concerned. I am not going to recommend that stock. Ron in Pennsylvania, Ron. Hello, Jim. Ron. Jim, Jim, I too have shed tears of joy when the Eagles finally won the big one. Yes, what's up? Hey, my stock is Cypress One. 
Okay, it's a REIT. The real estate investment trust is doing poorly. Yields 4%, but it's data center. When that stock goes between 4 and 5%, I'm going to say buy it. Let's go to Gino in Florida. Gino! On semiconductor. On semiconductor, I like very, very much. It's an inexpensive semi. They're coming down. It's a buy. Let's go to Paul in Texas. Paul. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. My stock is Altice, A-T-U-S. Uh, no, wait. I, that's got too much debt. Not going to be there for me. I need to go to Mike in Missouri. Mike. Jim Cramer, how are you, buddy? I am good. Struggling to get through these days, but good. How about you? I'm doing great. Hey, I just need your uh, take on Cypress Semiconductor. All right, Cypress Semi is a very good semiconductor. However, there is a lot of speculative money in it. I think it could go down to 16. Don't need to pull the trigger now. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. President Trump short the stock market. I know he's not actually betting against stocks, but when I try to make sense of his recent actions, it's like somebody in the White House, after generating fabulous returns in his first year, now wants the averages to get crushed. Look, for his, his first 13 months in office, the, the president did everything in his power to make stocks go higher. No denying that. Now, though, it feels like he's decided enough for the stock market. It's time for a new thing to brag about, humbling China. Suddenly, he's turned his back on stocks, and whenever he talks about how strong the market is, as he did at the end of today's press conference, a little voice in the back of my head wonders that if he were a hedge fund manager, which he isn't, he's trying to pump up the averages so he can sell them from a higher level. Again, I know that's not really the case, but I'd almost feel comforted if it were true. Then the recent moves to the administration would make a little sense, because the way this trade dispute with China has been handled, it is indeed as if the White House wants the averages to go lower. Yeah, if you really wanted to crush the market, you'd start attacking the Chinese out of nowhere after slapping tariffs on steel and aluminum with no clear idea of how to actually implement the policy. Think about how they've handled the steel duties. Our steel producers argue that the Chinese are dumping steel illegally, not here in America, but everywhere else on Earth that punishes and pushes the price down, hurting our producers. So the president decides to slap a duty on all imported steel to ensure that the Chinese can't sneak their stuff in through Canada, Mexico, whatever. The policy has some drawbacks, but it made sense. It was logical. So the steel stocks jumped because this was very good news for them. But then it turns out that, surprise, the whole world is mad at Trump because other countries don't like it when we slap tariffs on their exports out of nowhere. The president doesn't want everyone to hate him, so he appoints Larry Kudlow as his chief economic advisor. Kudlow's incredibly nice, and he can explain to our allies how Trump's actually doing the right thing. Then the next thing you know, the White House does a total 180. They walk back the steel tariffs with most of our allies, so the steel stocks get slammed that are now well below where they were before the tariffs were put on. I'm beginning to wonder, is the exercise pointless? Then yesterday, the president unveils these new tariffs on China, 50, 60 billion except the policy is being rolled out incoherently. We know the tariffs are supposed to fight intellectual property theft, but we don't know which products they're going to be applied to. Contrast that to the Chinese, who had a whole host of targeted tariffs ready to go as soon as Trump made the decision to go after them. They were ready. Here's the thing. I think the president's plan is justified. But if you want to beat the Chinese government in a trade war, you need to outsmart them. There's a cost of fighting back, so it's not worth doing if we aren't going to do it well. China spent the last year preparing for this. We can't just threaten them and then slap on tariffs with no bargaining being done, especially when we haven't even decided what we're going to impose the tariffs on. What does that accomplish except to scare people and knock the stock market down? 
That's why I asked facetiously about the president's big short. Of course, he isn't really short stocks. But you have to wonder what the heck happened to the guy who used to grade his job performance based on the performance of the market. As long as the president keeps firing high-level people, undoing policies from last week, and antagonizing the Chinese with no clear objective, he'll be a headwind for stocks, not a tailwind. A suboptimal and ill-advised situation indeed. Stick with Kramer. Still in one piece, and I know it's Cinco de Mayo. Okay, let's face it. This was one horrible week, and we got to just stay calm. We're going to get through this next week. It may not be any better because I don't see any numbers that are going to change things. Like I said, there's always more work somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here at Made Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you Monday. I'm Kelly Evans, host of CNBC's The Exchange, which is now a podcast. Subscribe today. It's your one-stop shop for the day's top business stories. Plus, listen in for lots of original reporting, in-depth conversation, and some of the best of CNBC's award-winning investigative work. Subscribe to The Exchange for free, and you can always catch The Exchange live weekdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, only on CNBC. See you then.